Well, would you turn to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, where Jesus performs his most visible and his most enigmatic miracles in rapid succession. The feeding of the 5,000 men, plus women and children, is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. In fact, it's the only event recorded in all four Gospels previous to the triumphal entry. So let's identify quickly four clues in our text that really help us appreciate the magnitude of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The first clue is in verse 4 where John tells us the Passover was at hand. And this reference to the most famous feast in the Jewish calendar just shapes our thinking about the feast in the wilderness that Jesus is about to prepare for his followers. We explored the meaning of the Passover last week. The second clue is found in verse 14 where we learn of the people's response to the miracle. They exclaim, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. What a response. The third clue is found in verse 15, where we learn of a second response of the people together with Jesus' reaction, perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And the fourth is found in verses 22 through 71, where we find Jesus' famous discourse on the bread of life. We don't find that discourse in the synoptics, but we find it here in Matthew. After multiplying the bread, Jesus points to himself as the true bread which came down out of heaven. Those four clues give you some indication about just how important this miracle really is. And I want to pursue that fourth clue for just a moment. Observe in verse 22, when Jesus gave the discourse on the bread of life, verse 22 says, on the next day. This is the day after Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. In other words, his miraculous multiplication of the bread is just fresh on their minds. It just happened yesterday. Nevertheless, Jesus' discourse was very difficult for people to accept. If you glance ahead at verse 60, we read, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Then in verse 66, we learn, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And finally, in verses 70 and 71, we have a reference to Jesus' betrayal by one of the twelve. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, when you take those four clues together, they demonstrate the feeding of the 5,000 was an extraordinary testimony to Jesus' true identity 
However, the feeding of the masses also precipitated a great defection on the part of many people as they turned their backs on Jesus. So John 6 really truly is a turning point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, well, what was it that Jesus said that turned so many people away? Well, look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? We'll come to that verse in due course. And after multiplying the loaves, Jesus explained that he was the true bread out of heaven. His own flesh will be sacrificed upon the altar of a nation in order to bring about eternal life. That first Passover manna satisfied the nation in the wilderness for a day, but it was no guarantee of eternal life. And likewise, the bread Jesus multiplied in the wilderness satisfied the crowds for a moment, but they were hungry again the following day. Jesus came to introduce a new Passover, which required nothing short of the sacrifice of the Messiah. The people are ready to make Jesus king. But at the very moment when they appear to embrace him, Jesus speaks of dying as a sacrifice instead. And they turn and they walk away. This was a very disruptive revelation for the Jews. Now, as I say, the feeding of the 5,000 plus was Jesus' most visible miracle. I mean, thousands of people experienced this miracle. Situated between Jesus' most visible miracle and the discourse that he delivered the following day is a record of Jesus' most enigmatic or puzzling miracle. Let's back up our reading for a moment to verse 14 and then read down through the miracle of him walking in the water in verse 21. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, I wonder whether you have ever interpreted this extraordinary miracle of the walking on the water in its immediate context. The Gospels, friends, are more than just a catalog of Jesus' miracles and sermons. 
There is a deliberate craft to the way that these Gospels are structured. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. They are prepared to make Him king. Later that night, Jesus walks on water. The following day, His followers begin to defect because they don't want His teaching concerning death. That's the flow of the context. But who is this that is about to predict His death? None other than the man who can literally walk on water. This extraordinary miracle does indeed give us just a glimpse into the true identity of the prophet and the king. And it helps us just hold on to his true identity when we learn that people begin to walk away from the prophet king who decides to go to Jerusalem as a sacrifice. Now, we're so accustomed, I think, to reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, with the outcome in view that we forget about how confusing Jesus' ministry really was to people. Yes, indeed, the Old Testament told of a coming prophet and king. But it also spoke of a suffering servant. Did they realize that these are one and the same person? The Gospels weave together numerous Old Testament threads. And when you step back and you view the whole tapestry, the portrait of a single individual emerges. But all those threads initially can be quite confusing when you take them in isolation from one another. Who is this Jesus? Here in John 6, Jesus is the great prophet, the king who walks on water, but equally he is the sacrificial bread who descended from heaven. It's the same person. So let's approach our passage with this framework in mind. Again, backing up to verse 14 and discover something about the true identity of Jesus. Verse 14 tells us, when the people saw the sign that he had done, that's the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, who is this prophet? To get the answer, let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. The Jews, of course, venerated many ancient ancestors. Among them hardly were any so famous as Abraham, David, and Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver. Moses, who led the nation out of the dungeon of Egypt in the first Passover. And just how important is Moses to the Jews? Well, Moses is the man who met with God on the summit of Sinai. It was Moses who drew those laws together from God and forged that nation into, forged that band of slaves rather into a nation there at the foot of Sinai. It was actually Moses who wrote more of the Old Testament than any other individual. In many ways, Moses combined the roles of Abraham and David. Faith and politics, religion and state, that's how they look at Moses. 
Moses occupied a position of supreme national importance. In our own American context, he was kind of a George Washington and Jonathan Edwards put together in one individual. That's how important he is to the Jews. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, notice what Moses himself, this highly venerated man, predicted. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So clearly Moses predicted a second Moses would come. A second Moses would emerge where? Within Israel, among the brothers. And the second Moses will speak the very words of God. And all through their long history, the Jews looked for this new Moses. Yes, they look for a Messiah, but they also look for this coming prophet, the second Moses. So who is this prophet? Well, understand the Jews associated the miracle of manna with Moses. And now Jesus has miraculously multiplied bread in the wilderness. So with that in place, let's turn back to John 6. But as you're turning, you are turning past a remarkable testimony to the true identity of the second Moses. You're turning right past Matthew's Gospel. And if you recall from our series on Matthew, Matthew emphasized mountains. Moses, of course, brought the law down from Sinai. And it really is impossible to understand the whole testament apart from the law of Sinai. Well, in Matthew, a second Moses delivers the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. And his face glows in the Mount of Transfiguration. And overlooking Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Jesus delivers the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew concludes with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee delivering his great commission. This is the second Moses on the mountain. And listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for just a minute. And Jesus says, you have always heard. And he quotes the oracles of Sinai. He quotes Moses. But then he swiftly adds, but I say unto you, as if every word that he spoke is equally important to every word from Yahweh that came rumbling off the roof of Sinai. It is no wonder God said through Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is exercising his role as the second Moses. Now, all of that helps us interpret John 6 and verse 14. Here we are again. This is indeed the prophet 
who is to come into the world. The second Moses has come. And actually, the crowd got it right. This is the prophet. Now, when we embrace Jesus as the second Moses, what is our natural response? What would your response be? I dare say it would be verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, wouldn't you want to make Jesus king? If Jesus is the second Moses speaking the words of Yahweh, shouldn't we make him king? A king is a lawgiver. And what better candidate could there be than the new Moses? I mean, why not make him king? So friends, why does Jesus then withdraw? I will come around to that question momentarily. First of all, I do want to clear up a possible misinterpretation that you may have heard that I think our passage addresses. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here, and then we'll come back to the question. But in a roundabout way, this little tangent is going to help us understand the question of why Jesus withdraws. In the last century, there were many interpreters who taught a view called the postponement of the kingdom. Postponement of the kingdom. This is a view that was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible. And I don't know of contemporary theologians that are still teaching this view, but I do hear about it from time to time from curious Christians. Like I had a student recently, he grew up in a church, and he said, I was taught this all the time. The postponement view claims that Jesus came to offer a kingdom to the Jews. The Jews rejected the kingdom, and they killed the king instead. Consequently, Jesus postponed his kingdom to the millennium. And there are some aggressive forms, the postponement view, that likewise postpone the relevancy of much of Jesus' teaching to the millennium. For example, according to this view, the Sermon on the Mount has a great deal to say about the kingdom of Christ, but actually does not apply to us today. The Sermon on the Mount applies to the future millennium. Now, I personally believe there are numerous problems with this view, especially considering that the cross and resurrection become a kind of plan B. Had the Jews embraced their true king, Jesus would have never died. And friends, such a scenario would have been catastrophic for God's plan to redeem mankind. Friends, the cross was not plan B. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And friends, a sovereign God does not postpone any of his plans. Another problem with the postponement view is that it really fails to recognize that God's kingdom, in some sense, is indeed present now. Why do we find Paul preaching the kingdom in Acts 28 well after the death of Jesus. Why would Paul tell the Colossians that at the moment of salvation they were translated immediately into the kingdom of God? Why do we pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, when we set about to evangelize the world? Our mission is to press the rule and the reign of Christ in the hearts of men all over the planet. Thy kingdom come. 
And how do you interpret the kingdom parables of Matthew 13 and the growth of Christ's kingdom throughout all of church history if the kingdom has just been postponed? And friends, how do you explain Jesus' words when they put him on trial in Jerusalem? Tried before the Sanhedrin, Jesus claimed, from now on, I've emphasized this previously, you know that, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he was referencing Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man the authority to rule all nations. And Jesus did not say in the future postponed kingdom, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Jesus says from now on, this is what you're going to see. They had no sooner killed him than the resurrected Christ claimed, end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. If his authority was postponed, Jesus apparently didn't get the memo. He's got it from the moment he resurrected. So friends, bring all of that back to verse 15. This verse really proves quite problematic to the postponement theory. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The postponement theory says Jesus offered the kingdom and the Jews rejected it, so he postponed it. Well, here the Jews embrace Jesus as king, and he's the one that turns them down. It's exactly the opposite. So with that in mind, let's come back to our question. Why why doesn't Jesus accept this attempt to make him king? Well, ironically, the Jews actually have the same problem that the postponement theorists have. They do not understand how, how God planned to make Jesus king. God is going to make Jesus king, but how is he going to go about that? That's crucial. God is going to make Jesus king, friends, right on schedule. In Psalm 2, we've looked at this passage many times, as interpreted in the New Testament, is emphatic. The nations are raging and God appoints His Son as sovereign over those nations when at the resurrection. That's when God did it. If Jesus actually became king immediately, John 6, if He chased off the Romans and set up a kingdom right then, right there, that would fulfill some Old Testament prophecies, but not all of them. And that's the problem. Remember, the Old Testament predicted a suffering servant. A suffering servant, not just a reigning king. The Old Testament predicted a gruesome death as God's servant was numbered with transgressors. In fact, the whole Old Testament religious system centered on the tabernacle and the temple pointed ahead to a sacrifice. The manna pointed to the true bread that would fall from heaven down to earth to be devoured in order to sustain life. And the problem with the Jews in verse 15 is that they had a limited view of Jesus' true identity. Friends, they wanted a king, but not a servant. They wanted a throne, 
without a cross. They wanted a new exodus without an atonement. And that's precisely the problem, in my estimation, with the postponement theory, the servant, the cross, and the atonement. Friends, these were not mere afterthoughts in the mind of God. These were no plan B. This was God's will from the foundation of creation. So, friends, we really have to embrace the complexity of Jesus' true identity. Indeed, the whole Old Testament did point straight to Him. It really did. But that same Old Testament gave us a complex variety of symbols and types and predictions that all pointed to the most important person who had ever lived. And you have to work through all of that to truly figure out who this person is. You have to pull all those threads together simultaneously for that whole portrait, for the whole tapestry to emerge. And it really can be a difficult process. Friends, Jesus is the second Moses. And Jesus is the true King. And Jesus is the true bread of sacrifice. Now, if you come to Jesus and you're having trouble understanding Him, let me encourage you not to turn your back and walk away because He refuses to feed your belly again or to overthrow the Romans or to act in precisely the way you thought He was going to act. Many people have come to Jesus and left disappointed. It happens all the time. It happened right here in John 6. They come to Jesus and they leave disappointed because they embrace the Messiah that they think is going to do their own bidding instead of embracing Him on His own terms. If there's any doubt, though, about His true identity... If there's any wavering on your part, well then just keep moving forward with the passage. And notice what it tells us about him. We have a really important clue as to his true identity. Jesus is not just prophet, servant, and king. Jesus is actually sovereign over nature. That's how the miracle of the walking on water fits into our passage. In verses 16 through 21, we have a record of what I regard to be the most enigmatic miracle that Jesus performed. A just raw display of His power. A testimony to His true identity as sovereign over creation. So look at verse 16. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking in the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now you may be wondering why I say this miracle of walking across the storm of Galilee is so enigmatic, so puzzling. Well, how does this miracle differ from Jesus' other miracles? A couple of weeks ago, we explored Jesus' statement back in John chapter 5, where Jesus claims that His works bear witness to His identity. We took a little time, and we just sort of worked through His miracles. And here's what we discovered. 
Jesus' miracles involve him, first of all, reversing the effects of the curse. If the Creator became incarnate in His broken, fallen creation, well, what sorts of miracles would you expect Him to perform? Right? Jesus is no wizard. Jesus is no Harry Potter. Jesus is the Creator. What kind of miracles will He perform? Jesus heals blindness and withered hands and mute tongues and deaf ears. He exercises demons from His creation and He calms storms that have sunk hundreds of ships and claimed the lives of thousands of sailors. Symbolically, He attacks the thistles and the thorns that spread over creation by instantly creating wine at a wedding and multiplying loads for thousands. He reverses the spread of leprosy and even raises the dead to life. Jesus just keeps on rolling back the curse that has descended on His creation that He loves. And Jesus' miracles also involve Him not only reversing the curse, but can I say it this way, accelerating His providences. Jesus is always at work in His creation. Jesus, even right now, is turning water into wine, but through a process of photosynthesis that is so slow that we call it providence, not a miracle. But on one occasion at least, He came along and just accelerated that process into seconds. He has been creating the limbs of a child in the womb, and sometimes it doesn't develop correctly, and He just accelerates in the mere seconds what normally would take 40 weeks, what normally would take 20 years as the person matures into adulthood. He accelerates His providence. Jesus has always been growing wheat in the field and fish in the sea to sustain His creation. And sometimes He comes along and dramatically just accelerates that at warp speed and feeds thousands miraculously. When that, when that providence speeds up, all right, you call it a miracle because He does it like that. Now, when you think about His miracles this way, as the Creator healing and restoring and providentially repairing His creation, His walking in water does indeed become rather enigmatic, does it not? I mean, how is he rolling back the curse? What, what is he fixing in creation? I, I really don't know how else to describe this miracle aside from the fact that it's, it's, it's just a raw display of his extraordinary power. He is not reversing the curse. He is not sustaining life or healing the broken creation. He is just putting on a show of his incredible power. Friends, if Jesus can walk on the waves... Is He not the Creator who filled the ocean basin stretching across 70% of our planet? Is it possible that the Creator God really is here, embodied in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Has Yahweh visited His fallen planet? And the answer, my friends, is an emphatic yes. And it's right there in verse 20 where Jesus exclaims, It is I. Do not be afraid. Friends, the expression translated, It is I, you know it, is quite literally, I am Yahweh. That is God's name that was revealed to Moses, another raw display of His power, when He spoke through a flaming bush that was unconsumed, 
It is His name, Yahweh. Now, God has many titles. We did a little series on Exodus a couple years ago. We discovered that God has many, many titles. But properly speaking, God's covenant name is Yahweh. This is my name. I am that I am. And Jesus says, verse 20, Yahweh, do not be afraid. Friends, how on earth do you ignite a bush in flame without consuming it? Well, how on earth do you walk across the water without sinking? Answer, I am Yahweh. I created the bush. I created the flame. I created the water. I created the storm. I created the wind. I have absolute mastery over all creation because I am Yahweh. The Creator has come. And He walks in Galilee. He walks in the waves of the storm. And friends, this miracle is simply a manifestation of the presence of the Creator. And do you recall what Yahweh said from the burning bush? Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. And I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the hand, out of the land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have come down. Friends, that was the first Passover. And remember back in verse 4, Jesus points us to the Passover. Well, why has Yahweh come for a new Passover? Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, Jesus is the burning bush, wholly engulfed in the flames of Yahweh's wrath, yet unconsumed. Jesus is Yahweh who walks in the roiling storms of creation. Jesus is Lord of wind and fire and earth and sea. The elemental forces of nature bend to His sovereign will. And friends, Jesus is Yahweh come down to deliver us from Egyptian bondage and to raise us up at the last day. That's what's going on here. I am Yahweh. Now the question is, will the people receive Him? He's the King. He's the prophet. He's the true manna. He is the God who walks into the storm and across the sea. Well, will the people receive Him? If we were to compare the four Gospels at this point, we would discover a broader view of where Jesus is at this point in His ministry. At this point in his ministry, John 6, John the Baptist, his forerunner, has been murdered. Four cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Nazareth, have rejected Jesus. The crowds are healed all over Galilee. They are fed. 
but they began turning away in alarming numbers. And John tells us again the next day, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And John also records a prescient question that Jesus put to the disciples after they collected those 12 baskets full of bread. It's in verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? Well, those are plaintive words that betray great loss. But Peter answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. All is not lost in Galilee. The disciples at least are beginning to understand. Now they have a long way still to go. John does not tell us, but Matthew does, that when Peter saw Jesus coming across the water, that he also got out of the boat. Not also, Jesus didn't get out of the boat. He got out of the boat and attempted to do the same. You know, I think we, we often read that account of Peter walking in the water as some sort of indication of you know, Peter's incredible doubt. Well, one more example of Peter's failure. We turn the account into all sorts of moralizing lessons about keeping our eyes on Jesus and not doubting and stepping out in faith and not sinking beneath the waves. And, and, and personally, I, I tend to think those applications are mistaken. Would you have the crazy audacity to step out into a stormy sea? I mean, would you do that? Really? Would you have that kind of faith? Okay, maybe we shouldn't jump all over Peter. The point rather seems to be this. The disciples, and Peter in particular, are beginning to embrace Jesus' true identity. They are really, truly figuring this out. Yes, the crowds have begun to defect, but these disciples are going to keep on following. And their fledgling faith has begun to take root. In the words of Peter, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You you have the words of life. Now friends, in John's Gospel, what we are discovering are really two themes on separate paths. First is the complexity of Jesus' true identity. Jesus is prophet. He is priest. He is servant. He is king. He is creator. He is sacrifice. He is logos. He is new wine. He is true manna. And He's so much more. But secondly, we're discovering the complexity not only of Jesus' true identity, but the complexity of embracing Jesus' true identity. Jesus meets people in the milieus of their complex, very complex social, racial, political, and familial circumstances. And believe me, life is very, very complex. You know that. And people who meet Jesus meet Him in very, very complex situations from the woman at the well to Nicodemus to the masses there on the hillside. Everyone everyone has a story that intersects with Jesus. And often, when those two stories intersect, there is incredible friction at the outset until those separate paths converge 
and we embrace Jesus as our Redeemer who came down to rescue us from Egypt, when our stories are finally absorbed into His benevolent kingdom. Several years ago, I was listening to a presentation from a respected theologian. And he was just dealing with a great variety of troubling circumstances that just confront us in life. And perhaps some of you here are really facing some complex situations. I actually, I know that's the case. Some of you are experiencing some real frustration and complexity. People discover Jesus in the midst of pain, suffering, financial loss, grief, job insecurity, and lots of other complexities. But I vividly recall a single statement this theologian made. In a moment of weakness, admitting that he simply didn't have all the answers to life's pressing questions, he just simply said this, where else can I go? Where else can I go? So friends, you may not get all your questions immediately answered immediately, and Jesus may act in ways that surprise you. And Jesus may not do the very thing you thought He was going to do. And understand that Jesus took a lot of time with His disciples because they often didn't understand Him either. But let me just encourage you not to abandon Jesus. Now is not the time to turn and walk away. Jesus has the words of life. Look at verse 68. Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's nowhere else to turn, friends. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Shall we bow our heads and pray together? Father, we thank You for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to Him because He has the words of life. He is the second prophet, the new Moses. He is the suffering servant, He is the Davidic King. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the vine. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is Lord. And He is Yahweh, one with You, O Father. And I pray that we would just truly delight in Him. And as we come to this communion table, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be upon Him and that we would remember the sacrifice that He offered. And as we partake of the bread, we would remember the broken body of our incarnate Savior. We thank You for the blood that was shed. And in taking of the cup, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of the cleansing that we find in Him. We pray all this for Christ's sake. Amen.